Hello, and welcome to Lighting the Shadows, a podcast all about mental health. I'm your host, Kristen Lowerson, and today I have a guest on the show, Kyle Spreedies, who has quite the story to tell. Kyle had a very interesting childhood and adolescence where he experienced abuse and trauma, but he was also able to connect with people who helped him through his intense challenges. Kyle shares his experience with open heart surgery at 18 and how utilizing both naturalistic and medicinal tools helped him achieve the best possible outcome for himself. Kyle is now working on writing a self-help memoir titled Decide Your Destiny. He's passionate about helping other people find hope and perseverance through challenges and to take back control of their lives after suffering through any kind of challenge, mental or physical. Kyle's kindness, compassion, wisdom, and determination to make a positive difference in the world really come across in this episode. I'm so grateful to him for taking the time to share his incredible story with us. If you like what you're hearing on this podcast, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. The more reviews the show receives, the more people it can reach. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired and uplifted today. Well, good morning. Today, I'm so excited to have Kyle here with me. Kyle's in Australia right now, which is just mind-blowing to me because it's almost midnight for him. And for me, it's seven o'clock and it's, yeah, it's just amazing that we can do this right now. So Kyle, thank you so much for being here. No worries. Thank you, Kristen. Really appreciate it. Uh, you know, we're across, expanding across the globe, lighting the shadows across the globe. Yes. All right. Well, Kyle, so just to jump in, we've had a conversation before this conversation, and you've told me a little bit about your story. And I think that it is absolutely incredible. And I'm so excited to share it with listeners today. Um, so I would love for you to just go ahead and jump into your story. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll just kind of go from there. For sure, sure. Uh, so I guess to start from from right, right off the top, I was born in South Africa, Johannesburg. Um, my mother was an international model, so she would go over to places like Tokyo and Moscow, and uh, she was you know, working for Vogue, and she'd have you know, a two-month contract um, that would extend to a four-month contract and extend it a little bit longer and longer. So I was pretty much raised by my granny, her mother. So she had a pub, my granny, and she ran this pretty much around the clock all the time. And it was a lot safer to have me pretty much raised in the pub. So for the first few years of my life, I was raised in the pub and you know, I had my own stool, you know, the, the classic sort of red furniture vibe, the, you know, the, the old classic pubs. And I had my own TV. Uh, so, you know, and I was, I, you know, I had everything sorted. I had my own pool table. I had a lot of um, entertainment with the with patrons. And I had uh, a good stash of ice cream that I, I sourced quite often. <laughs> my, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my grandmother, she, uh, she was so sweet to me and she would spoil me dearly, um, myself and granny. Um, and, you know, we'll get into the story later on. My Australian granny continued that, continued that trend. Um, so anyway, I would, I would call out to her. I'd say, 
granny ice cream you know so that would be that would be my order that i'd place my order for ice cream and <laughs> and uh one of the patrons she was this lovely older lady and and i, I had to be told the story because i didn't quite realize it but she would come in um on, on the weekends and she'd say to, she said kyle you can't you can't scream at your granny she's back there you know working like a slave she's you know trying to run this pub and i turned to her and i said if I call my granny, she will come. <laughs> <laughs> you knew from a young age, you knew. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a bit of, um, I don't know what you call it, a bit of gusto. You know, I was, uh, yeah, I wasn't afraid, afraid to talk to adults, which um, I think is, is a really beautiful sort of, I don't know, gift or just way of communicating. I think it's, it's important to be able to be confident with who you're talking to and confidently your social skills are so important and they really pay off for the rest yeah. of your life yeah and it makes sense that that taught you those social skills because you were interacting with adults all day inside a pub yeah. where people really open up <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure you were like yeah you learn those skills very early on it sounds yeah, yeah exactly I mean I I would go to sleep um and I would wake up at about 5 a.m uh, again, I've been told this by my granny, but I wake up at 5am because the last patron would leave. So I was so used to sleeping with noise all, all around me um, that, you know, when the last patron would go, I'd leave, uh, I would get up and I would grab a mop and I'd be trying to mop. And she said it was so funny because I was this little you know, two-year-old kid try, trying to mop, <laughs> mop, mop the pub. You were two, two yeah, this years was from- old. This was from zero to, to two. I eventually um, came out to Australia when I was two and a half. Wow. That <laughs> is mind-blowing. I was picturing you as like a six-year-old kid. No, wow. no. I was, I was... So when you were two and a half, you moved. So tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, so my mother was traveling around the world and she came to Australia, um, Sydney, Australia, and she met uh, an uh, a man by the name of Ward Stevens. Um, and he was actually doing a short sort of film, like a, like a, a local film. He was creating like some sort of film. He was a chiropractor, but, but that was his, I guess, side hobby. Um, and he met my, my mother and they, you know, she was kind of one of the main actress in the, in the film. And um, yeah. And then, you know, eventually Ward said, you know, that, that I, she goes, he found out about me. And she said, you, you know, you need to bring him over because, it was 1995 in South Africa, and it was, you know, a great time because Mandela came into power, obviously, for the country, but it was also a very dangerous time, um, you know, because the, the old guard had gone, and there was obviously um, a lot of violence on the streets. So, you know, Ward was obviously thinking violent Johannesburg or safe and sound Sydney, Australia, you know, and mm. so... He really pressed my pressed my mother to come to bring me over, um, and th- and then we could you know get citizenship. And so yeah, I came over when I was two and a half. I grew up in Bondi, Bondi Beach, Australia. So your typical typical Australian experience. Um, back then it was like a like a like a beach town, you know. So you would walk down the street and people you'd know people and different sort of things. Um, and when I was actually six years old, there was this situation where um, I went rollerblading with my friends. My friend, sorry, and we were rollerblading and we came to this one crossing and we were going to cross the road and we turned to the left to go and cross the road 
and I saw Ward, so you know my my my, new, my stepdad, and my mother in the back of a police car. Oh and, dear! <laughs> and they, and they turned, <laughs> oh no! Yeah, and and they turned to me and just looked like this horror, like this shock horror, and I was just shocked, like you know, on these little rollerblades with my buddy, just going looking at them. And for a couple of seconds, we were just staring at each other and they jumped out the car and they went, where'd you go? You know, where'd you go? We had to call the cops. We were worried about you. So. Oh, I was thinking they were both arrested. I'm like, oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Well, that's what I was thinking at the time. I was like, yeah. you know, I'm six years old. I, I think you need parents in your life. So this is yeah. going to be quite tricky. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> about a year after that, that incident with the police, um, looking for me on my rollerblades, I actually, we went to Ireland. So um, I went and lived in Ireland uh, basically because, you know, my, my stepdad Ward, he was opening up quite a few practices um, and they wanted to open them up in Ireland because Ireland, in 2003, Ireland was um, like an ec- economic boom. So went to Ireland, had some schooling in Ireland, um, spent two years there and also I spent six months in France and then I went to school in Paris. So wow, so you're about s- how old? Seven at this time? Yeah, I was about yeah, like about kindergarten, seven. basically yeah. first grade in Ireland. And yeah. then when did you do schooling in France? So I was about a year into Ireland, and then I went over to France. So about yeah, so about eight. Um, wow, six months because my mom's one of her friends from her modeling career was in Paris, so we went and stayed with okay. them for six months. So. <gasps> Yeah. <laughs> what an interesting childhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then what happened? So you you lived in Paris for a while and then after that, after those 6 months, where did you go? Back to Ireland. Then see my mother and um Ward, my mother and my stepdad split. We came back to Sydney, Australia, and his parents um welcomed us in, which was amazing because you know that my mother split from Ward. But yeah. they welcomed us in. They said, you know, you're part of the family now. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, come. Wow. So I live with my grandparents. That's um, my, my Australian grandfather um, of my shoulder there. So, mm. so Ward's parents. So I lived with my Australian grandparents. So I'm not related to them at all, but we, we lived with them for two years until my mother got on her um, feet. And then we moved out and we kind of lived in um, City West housing, which is kind of, uh, kind of government housing. We lived in government housing for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. It's quite... Uh, quite rough there were quite there were quite a few drug busts in our um, our apartment area so that was interesting and you'd uh kind of go into the elevator they had an elevator but you go into the elevator go down um ready to go and catch the tram to school and you'd be in there with like someone who was off their head just yeah and you're just just trying to get invisible in the in the elevator so oh man and you were around how old at this time so, so this, yeah, so this was from, yeah, from 10 and I, and I, and I lived there from 10 to 14. Um, okay. Uh, eventually I, um, at 14, I was kicked out onto the streets. Um, uh, and I had to find a place to sleep <laughs> and, um, I, you know, I knew where my grandparents lived. So I caught a train down to, uh, Cronulla, down, down about an hour and a half. Trip down the coast, yeah, and skip, skipped a few trains because I didn't, I didn't have any money. I was a fourteen-year-old kid, and I um, walked about twenty minutes from the train station to the house. I was knocking on the window, and 
I just knew at that time, I was like, I need to get inside, you know, it's not, it's not good for me to be outside in the dark. Yeah. And then my grandparents came down in their, in their, their cute little gowns and um, opened the door and welcomed me in. And I lived with my grandparents for... And these are Ward's, Ward's parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What so incredible people. Relation. Yeah, no relation to me. Um, and they raised me and they actually became my parents. They, they are my parents and they, they actually saw me as their son. Um, you know, I spent over 10 years. Did they officially adopt you? No, I guess, I guess there was no, no official adoption. Um, yeah, but you consider yeah. them like your parents. Yeah. I mean, if you don't mind there. me asking, yeah. why did you get kicked out at the age of 14? You know, my mother, she, uh, had quite a serious drinking problem, um, all through, uh, growing up, uh, Early on in the relationship with Ward, um, Ward actually about six months in wanted to leave, but he didn't because of me. You know, he, he actually wow. stayed in the relationship because of me. Um, I think there was jealousy issues, things like that um, that were going on in her head. And I don't know if it was from from her younger years, from the modeling in, industry, from whatever was going on in her life. Um, but she had some serious jealousy issues and Ward would, would kind of come back uh, from you know, his day as a chiropractor and he'd go out drinking with all his chiropractor friends, have a few beers afterwards, you know, talk about business, whatnot, and come home. Um, and, you know, she, so she'd always had this, this thought that he was cheating on her. Um, yeah. And, you know, so one time she put all these work clothes, you know, Ralph Lauren shirts into the bathtub and put bleach all over them. You know, another time she did it and she lit, lit all these clothes on fire. So, there were those experiences and then even at the age you know <laughs> the ripe old age of three um i don't remember this particular moment but you know I'm, my mother would chase my father my stepdad around the house with a knife um, oh wow and apparently she had a knife at his neck and he was holding her back and he was he was against the wall and he was squeezing her arms so so tight um to try and get her to you know drop the knife um and she looked at me and she, you know, said, call the police, call the police. And at that age, three years old, you know, I said, but mom, you're the one with the knife. You know, so <laughs> he, re- he remembers that. And he goes, he couldn't understand how I was so, uh, you know, I could morally write. I could see what was right and what was wrong, you know, who, who was attacking who. So, you know, that continued on in Ireland. Um, you know, one, of, one memory that I do have, which uh, quite a confounding memory is, um, I woke up in the middle of one night and I came out to the, my room because I heard noises. Um, I was only, you know, like six at this age. And I looked out and the front door to, our, to the apartment was open and, you know, the, the, the light, the street lights were kind of illuminating the hallway and, and it was kind of like the dark, quiet, eerie night. And I, then I turned to the, to the stairs um, in our apartment and, you know, I saw, um, you know, my stepdad over my mum. And he was kind of holding her down by her throat. And I thought, like, so that was the first time where I was like, I don't know what was going on. And, you know, yeah. my mother turned to me and she said, um, you know, call the police, call the police. Um, yeah, and I said, uh, and I, you know, I was frozen. I didn't know what to do. Um, and then she said, if you love me, you will call the police. Um, you know, if you love me, you will call the police for your mom. And then what I saw was, she was she had in her hand a brick and ward had 
blood dripping down his, his head. Oh, so goodness. I obviously I obviously saw what was actually happening. So I realized, okay, this wasn't really Ward attacking my mother. This was more him def- defending himself and trying to trying to put her at arm's length. Um, so yeah, so that was a pretty intense memory and you know, and so obviously conditional love there straight off the bat, you know. You know, if you love me, you'll get the police. So so yeah, so you know, when I lived with her on her own, I mean, I kind of a movie that kind of expresses this for me is um, uh, or a book series is a series of unfortunate events like Count Olaf. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so that I, I kind of feel like I can kind of resonate with those kids in, in a way. Like that's how like when, when you feel like trapped and you feel like anything good that's going on. So you know, great father, great, great grand grandmother, or stepdad everything kind of gets destroyed around you because of this mm-hmm. one person um, who has I guess, authority over life, who is, you know, who is your caretaker. So, you know, anyway, we, we lived in, um, in that housing and I, was, I would take myself off to school. Um, you know, uh, my mum would be <laughs> drinking, listening to Rolling Stones late at night. She'd be doing cartwheels on the, on the, on the carpet, you know, and I'd have to go in, off and uh, go out and turn the music off and hope she was asleep because if, she wasn't asleep. She'd attack me, you know, mm. um, and so she would attack me, you know, in certain ways. And you know, <laughs> look, I hope she doesn't see this podcast. But <laughs> you know, to be transparent, she, she she would choke me, like she'd choke me around the neck, and she'd choke me on on, on my bed. And she, you know, she would get physical, throw plates at me. And mm. I mean, one funny time, she 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 frisbeed a plate, uh, um, and it just skimmed over my brother's hair, head, and it kind of gave him a comb over and he looked at me just like all shocked, like, you know, like this kind of shock in his face because this plate just missed his head. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, look, there were probably things that I was doing as well. Uh, I, I was very, um, how do I say, uh, I was very independent. I didn't want to be controlled. I didn't want to be really told what to do. You know, I felt like I was, I guess, adult enough that I could wash my clothes at the right time, do these things at the right time. But she was very controlling. So, yeah, yeah. but I, I never laid a hand on my mother. And I never laid a hand on a woman ever. Yeah. You know, the only thing I ever did was kind of hold her back or push her back, you yeah. know, when she was coming at me. So that, that, that obviously fizzled into some serious fights and serious bouts, um, you know, and things I regret, you know, is swearing, you know, swearing at my mother. Um, and yeah, eventually she just said, uh, you know, after one fight, she said, if you don't leave, um, I'll call the cops and, you know, I'll have you arrested. And so in my mind, you know, even though there wasn't really any grounds, in my mind, I thought, you know, this woman is, um, she's a master manipulator and she, she could, she could actually make that happen. So, so that's, that's where I left. That's how I left. Um, yeah. that being what? said, she's, she's also a very generous woman and she, she, she she could have all my, you know, my stepdad, my real dad, her boyfriend, um, different sort of people in a room, and she couldn't have everyone get along, you know. So she, yeah. she had these polarized. She, she, she was really great when she was great. She was generous. She was entertainer. She was loving. She was kind. She had all these great aspects about her, you know. She was full of life, but you know, when she was bad, she was really bad. So yeah. I just want to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know for sure. And what a gift that you were able to have that intuition at such a, such a young age to know this is not okay. 
you know, mm-hmm. like what she's doing is not normal. It's not okay. This is not right. Um, and to be able to trust your intuition more than trusting your mom's word. And I'm yeah. sure that that kind of independence that you had at such a young age, it was probably like, sounds to me like a, almost a protection over yourself because you knew that you couldn't rely on her hundred percent. And you knew that from a very young age. And so, um, it makes sense that you would turn to that independence and, and just be like, you know what, you're not taking this away from me. This is something that is rightfully mine. And I think that that is incredible that you're able to do that at such a young age, because I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of kids can't distinguish that, you know, um, they look at their parents and they think that whatever they're doing is right, even when it's not. And, and that can be really difficult. So I think that is, that's, that's really terrible that all those things happened to you at such a young age and incredible at the same time that you were able to have that intuition and, you know, be able to, to know this is not okay. This is not normal. Um, and to find that independence so quickly. Thanks, Kristen. I mean, when you're in that situation, you don't realize these sorts of things, but when you get told it and and I've been told, you know, I, for a long, long time, I thought that was just, not that I thought it was normal, but I didn't really know anything else. And, you know, yeah. my heart goes out to everyone out there who, who justifies any level of abuse, you know, yeah. um, whether that's physical. And I can tell you the physical abuse, you know, like the thing is when she was choking me around my neck and, and I, I, that's when I would see in her eyes this turn and I'd be like, I don't know who that is. Like that's yeah. my mother, but there would be this, 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 this you know, sometimes switch. you've seen movies where the switch, yeah, so... Even through all of that, the mental abuse, which continued years on, um, was is is way worse than any any physical mm. physical abuse. You know, which 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 you know, uh, my heart goes out to everyone who's justifying any sort of abuse that they're receiving in their life. You know, whether it's verbal, physical, mental. I think there you know there has to come a time where you have to look and go, this isn't normal. This isn't right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I did a a recent episode um, and the man that I interviewed said something that has just stuck with me and rings so true to me. And he said, you cannot, you, you have to differentiate between an explanation and an excuse. And that that is so important to say like, okay, like to number one, say it's not okay. And that the abuse is abuse and to name it for what it is. And And it's difficult when it's from somebody that you, like you said earlier, are supposed to trust and Mm. that you love too. like, like I can tell from hearing you and your compassion towards your mom and your grace towards her, like you genuinely love her. And that is really hard to, to say, yes, I love them, but what they did is not okay. And yes, I can understand why they did this. Maybe like I can, I can give them a little compassion, you know, their background or what they went through was really hard. And, and like you said, she became a different person in those moments. Um, but it still doesn't make it okay. And Mm. it still 
traumatic and it's still, yeah, just not okay. So like you said, so important not to justify it because it, it is not, I think when you start to justify, you start to worry, well, maybe it was something that I did, you know? Like maybe Mm -hmm. I am to blame, maybe I, and like you said, well, maybe you have had some, some, some role in it and in the overall picture, but as far as the things that she did that were not okay, that's all on her, you know, and Mm -hmm. you can love somebody still and still say what you did is not okay. And what you did was hurtful. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sorry that you, um, had to go through that and that you experienced that. And I think you're an incredible example of somebody who has experienced that, but who has used that for it. It sounds like you've used it for your favor and I'm sure it hasn't all been good. Like I'm sure, um, as all trauma, there's, there's things that are not good (laughs) and there's things that affect you in a negative way, but it sounds like you have been able to take some of those things and transform them into things that are for your benefit. And, and that's, that's amazing and inspirational. Um, so, so moving forward in your story after, so you're 14 things with your mom aren't good. And did you decide, you said you got kicked out. I think inside I realized like, I don't think I would ever live with her again. Yeah. Um, but it didn't mean that I didn't try and go back. And then every time I go, went back, even when I was 18, 19, like you said, I would, I would leave, I'd leave an argument and I would recount instantly and I would go, did I do everything I could in that situation? You know, what, what did I, what role did I play? Did I, yeah. I really didn't like that. I, you know, and there were a few times where I did swear at her. I, uh, and every time I did, I, I would hate that. And, yeah. you know, even my grandmother, uh, my, my, you know, my Australian grandparents, um, you know, they would say like, you know, you can't swear, you know, and so, but, the, but there'd be times where I didn't swear and I, and I, and I just go, oh, shit, like, could I have tried a bit better? Could I have had a bit more patience with her? Could I have, and, I, and that would be as soon as she slammed the door, you know, whether I was 18, whenever it was, as soon as the cutoff, like get out of my house, I'd, I'd instantly think, you know, and sometimes I would go in, I'd try and hug, give her a hug. You know, sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. But I'd try and give her a hug and then I'd leave, you know. And so I was always trying to see what, what more I could have done or how I could have, you know, been better because I realised that, that she wasn't changing and she wasn't making any efforts to change. So it was up to me to try and be the best that I could be in that situation to make it as harmonious as I could. And oftentimes I did fail. You know, oftentimes, you know, I was a bit more, how do you say it, prepared for arguments or prepared to have confrontations you know I was uh, you know rather than having a bit of patience and a bit of maturity as I do now so you know and then luckily enough when I after I kicked out I lived with my grandparents and to me to be honest that they're like angels they, they were amazing you know my grandmother was a counselor for 60 years um, and but you know like I said it definitely had detrimental impact on my health and my mindset so I was 14 you know and then I started living with my grandparents I was also going through a lot of stuff you know I was I've been kicked out but also my cousin in South Africa um I got a call I got a call from my grandmother came home you know so I was, I was 16 at this time um so my so when I came home sorry to my grandmother's house my Australian grandmother's house 
she told me that my, my South African granny had called. Um, and this and is your call. mom's, is this your mom's mom? Yeah, my mom's mom. Okay. So my mom's mom was calling from South Africa uh, with some tragic news. And so I got on the phone and probably not the best way to <laughs> debrief someone at this age, but I got all the details, all the information. And my older cousin, um, the one who was like an older brother to me when I was younger, um, had just been murdered. Uh, so, and I got, you know, the, you know, the details that, you know, three people followed him and his girlfriend back to his, his house. Uh, he lived in a gated community um, and they fl- flicked the switch on in his bedroom. He got up, he knocked the first guy out, knocked the second guy out, and the third guy shot three bullets and the third bullet mm. um, killed him. He gave him, his girlfriend enough time to run out of the room because, um, you know, who knows what would have happened to her. Um, so she was able to run out the room um, and call for help. They never caught the guys. Um, so he, he, he was murdered. And then eight months later, my South African grandfather, so my mother's father, who I was very close to as well, who was one of the family members who would tell me how much he loved me and couldn't get off the phone, he passed away um, you know, from a simple spleen surgery that we, you know, there was no way that we thought he was going to pass away. So he passed away. So that was a lot of emotion at that time. And I was finding myself in fights, like school fights, inside school, outside of school. Um, I was really, how I reacted is that I just shut off the world, shut off the world. Um, I was very emotionally sensitive. I heard, you know, in English literature class, the word gun or the number three or different sort of things that I, it would emotionally disturb me, but I would shut myself off. So I'd come home to my Australian grandparents and my Australian grandmother, who was a counselor for 50 years, she was amazing. She'd shoot up from the, the couch and she's, you know, in her eighties and she would come to the front door as soon as she heard me turning that, that doorknob and she'd ask me how my day was and, you know, and really try and engage with me. And where I lived with my Australian grandparents is I lived, basically you get come into the entrance or you turn left and my grandfather, who was an architect, his um, studies there. And then on the back, there was like a little bed for me. So I used to call it the dungeon. So I'd come into the door <laughs> and, I'd, and, I'd, and I'd quickly sneak into the dungeon. Um, Started in the pub. Now we're in the dungeon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There we go. It's a bit of a trend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But she would always come to the door. She'd, I would always try and evade and she would always come there and just douse me in love and mm-hmm. questions. And really, she... she she is the reason or a big reason why I think I got through because she was, she kept knocking on that door yeah. and she kept knocking on that door. And I was just so emotionally in turmoil. You know, I'd yeah. go into my room and I would like cry on the, on, on the floor, the carpet floor, you know, when my grandparents were, would go to sleep, I'd cry and I'd like roll around the floor and like grip at my stomach because I felt so empty inside, you know, so yeah. much pain and, and I didn't know what to do, you know. Did you ever open up to your grandparents? So, yeah, so early on, um, it was dicey. I could have gone either way. I was hanging around the wrong crowd. I was getting into fights. Um, and the pain was probably getting to that point where it was overwhelming. Um, and I wasn't too sure <laughs> what tomorrow held. So so eventually I would I would open up to my, my grandmother, but it was, only, it was only little trickles, you know, little trickles. And then... You know, when I got to 17, I'd go into their, I'd always go into their room every night, every morning and I'd chat, you know, and I'd just chat. And then eventually 
I'd chat a little bit about, more about my life. And I'd, I'd talk about serious issues like, do I cut my mother out of my life, you know, because, um, you know, she's, she seems to pull me down like an anchor, you know. So, so I'd ask these sorts of questions. Um, and then eventually I, you know, I open up to them more and more. And that's really, I think, what saved me in a lot of ways. And I also saw a school counsellor at the time. Um, and that school counsellor, he told me something. He said, Carl, it's how you react. That's what matters in life. How you react is what matters, you know. And so that, that has still stuck to me for years. Um, and, and my grandmother also took me to a counsellor that she knew. And I went and spoke to that counsellor and had quite a few sessions with that counsellor. So that's what got me through. It's amazing what love can do and what just open conversation with other people and feeling seen and feeling heard. And I think it allows space for you to feel like you can process what's happened and then feel like, like if you're received in that kind of love, then you realize like, Hey, and I can still be loved with all these overwhelming emotions and things that are going on. Um, and it sounds like your grandparents were that rock for you to show you, Hey, this is, this is what love looks like. And you're worth that, you know, you're worth that love, um, to really just show you that unconditional love. So Still to this day, she, she does that. She, I'll call her and I'll say, you know, know, she'll say, you know, we love you, darling. Yeah. I, I love you. And I'll say, I'm so grateful for you. And she, you know, she'll say, you're worth it. You know, you're worth it. You, you gave us so much back. You know, we're so grateful for you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, how can you, you know, like, <laughs> I'm the one that's supposed to be grateful here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's so sweet. Um, and Kyle, your story doesn't end there. <laughs> it just, I feel like you should make a movie out of your life. <laughs> so tell us about the time that you got sick you were 18 yeah so I think to be fair as I've gotten older I've probably reflected and realized all that emotional shutting off and cutting off and pushing everything down you know really pushing everything down I think affected my health um so yeah so I was 18 um and following up this time my South African granny was she came over from um, South Africa and she was staying with my mother um, and my younger brother and my mother's boyfriend so I went it was one of those times where I went okay let me go and spend some time with my mother and try and rekindle um, and it was one of the first nights when I was staying there and I, I went to the gym I came home you know had a little um, up and go and I uh, went to watch um, Independence Day on the couch and I felt this overwhelming like freezing 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 cold temperature and so i stripped everything off and i was naked and i was just sitting on this couch watching independence day and then all of a sudden i felt you know really really cold and so i chucked everything on i put dunas on and that was the first sign and then the next night i went to get ice from the fridge and i collapsed on the ground and i was there for about 20 minutes you know i i couldn't move i was literally just conscious but i just couldn't physically move my body so my mother took me up to um, see a doctor and she said, all right, you probably just have gastro. Here's some, here's some tablets. Had the tablets, nothing changed. And then I 
yeah, I started vomiting and, and it was coming out both ends. So I just got sicker and sicker and I just said, I need to go to the hospital. I need to go to the hospital. And then my mother took me down to my grand, my Australian grandmother, you know, so took me down to my, my grandparents down in Cronulla. And they took me up to my uncle who was a chiropractor and he saw me and he said, look, he has got a virus for sure. Take him to the local doctor. If the doctor doesn't take him to the hospital, you need to take him to the hospital. So went to the doctor and he noticed these um, dots, red dots at the ends of my finger. And he said, Kyle, that, that means you've got a virus on your heart. You know, you've got a bug on your heart. Um, you need to go to the hospital right now. You know, you might have to be operated on. So flew, in, flew to the hospital in the ambulance and then they took me through to emergency and um, they, you know, the cardiologist came around. He said, we're going to put a pipe down your mouth and you're going to you know, go to sleep. And you're so, I was so sick that, that my peripheral vision had cut right down. Uh, everything seemed dark and kind of like a, like a movie where you get that heavy vignette. Like it was, just didn't seem real. And so I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I'm going to go to sleep, sweet. And he put me under and my, he told my mother and my grandmother, my Australian grandmother there, he said, um, look, he's probably not going to make it through the night um, and we're going to need to operate. Uh, he's got a three-centimetre bug that's eating a hole into his heart. So my mother called my stepfather, Ward, in Ireland, and he was a chiropractor, but he had a lot of knowledge around natural health um, and she called him and said, this is the situation. This is what's going on. Um, you know, like, what do we do? But he said to my mother, Kyle's too sick to operate. Let him, let, let him go into induced coma. And, you know, and we'll see what happens when he wakes up. So my mother flew him over. So I woke up about a week later. He was there. And he said, Kyle, this is the situation. Um, you know, you've got this bug in your valve. This is the surgery. They're going to cut a big chunk out of your heart. You're going to have metal attachments. You're going to have a... You know, you can't ski, you can't really go surfing, you can't, there's a lot of things you've got to be careful with. You're going to be on heavy medications um, and you're going to need regular procedures for the rest of your life. And so I was 18. I was like, wow. that's a bit rough. Um, and then he said, there's another option. There's a thing called the alkaline diet. And the whole point of it is it's a fasting juicing diet. And the premise is that you're going to starve the bug from any sugars in your body and any carbohydrates. So the bug's not going to be able to feed off anything and it's going to die off. So that's the premise. That's the idea of it. Um, and he said, these are the options. You know, he, he showed me the papers with the surgery and everything and all the information I need to know, all the risks. Um, and he said, I want you to be informed. You know, I want you to have every, everything from this side of the aisle and everything from that side of the aisle. And then you make a decision. Yeah. So he's, so I went, all right, look, I trust you as a man. I don't know about this whole alkaline juicing fasting thing. I'm never really experienced it, but, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a rugby boy. I, I, I eat meat and build muscle. That's all I know. So, but you know, let's give, let's give this a go. So, you know, he started me off. He said, all right, write down all the things that you really want to eat right now. And so I wrote down a cheeseburger, um, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts, all these things I really enjoyed. I went, oh, great. You know, dad, you, you, you're taking a, a, an order for me. Are you going to grab these things for me? He was like, no, no, I need you to sweat these out of your system because you, know, you need to get your mind in the zone. You're going to be juicing and having salads. He handed me a beetroot juice, had a sip of it, instantly regretted it. 
what the hell, how the hell am I going to manage this? You know, so I had the beetroot juice, had the spinach juice, had the salads, had vitamins. I listened to my grandmother's tapes. You know, she had lots of tapes. All I remember is a lot of talk about peaks and valleys. Um, I would visualize, you know, my heart healing and I'd, I'd, I'd draw my fingers over my heart. And, I, and, I, and you know, what you know, educated me up on the heart, where the, where the mitral valve was, the valve that we were trying to heal. Um, I'd have vitamins. And then I also had a kind of a confronting experience because I grew up, you know, quite gullible. I believed, you know, every cop was good. Every um, fireman's good. Every doctor's good. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I had nurses trying to pull my, um, they were saying they were going to put my, vitamins in the bin they were saying how dare I take my health in my own hands what do I think I was doing um you know you can't do this you know profs trying to help you and look I totally understand that they came from their knowledge yeah. base and they came from what they believed in and you know I I, I believe you know at, at some part of them that they were coming from a good place but it just caused a whole lot of stress to someone oh, who was yeah. trying to freaking stay alive so definitely so yeah so the, the prof came in and we said, um, he said, all right, we're going to operate. Um, yeah, and this was about two weeks in the hospital. And I said, look, Ward asked the perfect question. He said, what size does the bug have to get down to until it's a non-issue? And he said, he wouldn't give it to us. And we kept asking and kept asking, and kept digging. He said, look, if it gets down to 0.5 centimeters, it's no longer an issue, um, you know, for your heart. And so me and Ward went, great, great. He kind of left in a huff. And we kept going with the juicing and everything. We kept, kept going. Um, and then... Three weeks later, he came back in. He said, you know, all right, we're going to operate. We've left it long enough. And we said, well, hang on a minute. What's the, what's the numbers? You know, what's the, what's the bug size? And he said, oh, you know, you guys haven't listened to me. After. So he kept going and we just went, no, no, what are the numbers? You know, so tell us the numbers. So we had to dig into him again. We had to dig out the answer um, with multiple questions, as you, as you often have to do in different parts of your life. So, yeah, so then eventually he said, look, it's at 0.2 centimeters. So me and Ward looked at each other and went, oh, my God. That's we amazing. Like, like we, we freaking did it. We, we healed the heart. We got rid of the bug. This, yeah. this thing worked. And I always say there is no true experience like the experience you experience for yourself. You know, once you experience something and you actually go through it, that's truth. Like, that's yes. like you, you can't take it. No one can take that away from me. Yeah, definitely. No paper is going to take that away from me. Nothing's going to remove that truth like that, that, that happened so ah. so 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 that that was amazing and then and then um you know we, we went uh, about a couple of weeks later at about the five and a half week mark i left the hospital um and left in a wheelchair and the register the somalian man who i became you know amazing friends with grabbed me on my shoulder and i turned to him and i said oh you know i'm, I'm going now and he goes oh look you know i'm, I'm here to deliver a message from prof so okay go on he said look he said in two months' time, your lungs are going to be filled with blood. You're going to choke to death on your, in, on your blood um, in your sleep in the middle of the night. And he just wants you to know that. And so, and this was uh, from like, the, like, a message from the doctor? From the doctor. So, so this wow. Somalian man, he was, there, he was his register. Um, and, and, yeah, so he delivered this message from the, the prof, from the, from the cardiologist. So I went, wow, right. Uh, you know, I teared up. Anyway, I left the hospital. Um, I was greeted by my family up, you know, like when, when we went home and, I remember hugging everyone and then I hugged everyone again. Then I hugged everyone again. Yeah. And, you know, the look of the, like the sky, the blue sky and the sun and everything just felt so much richer. Life just yeah. felt so much richer, so much. Like, you know, I appreciated every tweet of the bird, like birds. It was amazing. Um, but my, my heart was still leaking blood. 
So the story wasn't over, you know. So we got rid of the bug, but the bug obviously ate part of my heart valve. Now from here, the mission was to repair the heart valve, not replace it. So we went to a new cardiologist and we told him about our story with this, this old professor. And he said, look, I play golf with him every weekend. I don't want to hear a bad word about him. You know, I showed him, you know, I told him I healed myself naturally. He said, look, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I went, okay, whatever it is, um, you know, like what's the strategy? Because I want to get a repaired valve. And he said, look, you know, this is the surgeon I'd suggest. And, and he goes, but look, you've got a 30% chance of repairing it. I don't see how this can turn around. So I left, went back three months later, and I kept doing my healing. You know, I kept doing everything I could. And I went back and he said, 50%. And I went, you know, that's amazing. He said, look, it is amazing. It's probably just because your heart size has come down or something else. So I went, okay. Whatever it is, whatever the source is, let's just keep trying to go. And I came back another three, three months later and he said, there's actually now a 70% chance at the size that your heart is, it's no longer inflamed. Um, you know, like there's probably a 70% chance we can repair. So I called Ward. He was in Ireland again at the time. I, I said, you know, what do you do? And he said, you know, what do you feel like doing? And I said, look, I think it's time that we do the operation. So I went in to have the operation. Um, my mother obviously was taking this very emotional at the time. She was drinking heavy. She was convinced that I was on heavy drugs at the time, you know, oh, and she dear. was kind of losing it. And so I just went to my grandparents. I said, you know, no one is to know the date of my operation. I'm not seeing anyone else besides you guys. And I also saw like one other friend. But I just kept my life very disciplined leading up yeah. to that surgery because I needed everything in my, um, you know, and even my, my friend the night before I went and had open heart surgery, I was playing you know, some video games at his, you know, and I left in the car and he said, oh, don't you have that thing tomorrow? And I went, yeah, 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 I'll see you next week. <laughs> shut the door, you know, just because I wanted to maintain, yeah. I didn't want to freak out and you know, I really didn't want to freak out. Yeah. And, you know, so, um, yeah, so, so I went into the operation. My grandparents um, took me in and the uh, anesthetist saw these bruises all over my body. And he said, you know, what's this? And I said, uh, you know, uh, a week or two ago, that same friend, uh, I went paintball, paintball, oh. yeah, I played paintball. With him. And he just shook his head. He was like, what the hell are you doing? Like uh, a couple of weeks before surgery. And I was like, I had to live, you know, I had to live, you know. Yeah. So, so uh, I went into the open heart surgery. You know, they, they, they cut your chest open, they crack your sternum open, and then they take your heart out of your chest. You're pretty much, you know, dead for about five hours. They cut open to your heart. And, yeah, so, so I woke up um, and I got told that I woke up screaming, repair or replacement, repair or replacement, you know. And so my mind was so focused on this goal yeah. that it just came out of me instantly. Um, and someone grabbed my hand and they said, Kyle, it was a repair. It was a, it was a repair. You know, they repaired your valve. And so I was like screaming. I was swearing. I was, you know, going, ah. you know, I was screaming. Yeah. I was like, yes, yes. Yeah. You know, so I was so happy. Um, I had three pipes in the middle of my, you know, up, up in my sternum. I had all sorts of arrangements, everything on top of me. And then a doctor came over to me. Um, one of the other doctors came over and said, look, um, you know, we had the surgery, you got a repaired valve, but your heart's in heart block. Um, I said, what does that mean? He said, because um, I was like, I'm sure I asked the doctors every question of anything that could go wrong. He said, well, heart block basically is that your heart hasn't really got back into beating for itself. I went, oh, shit. He said, yeah, um, look, it should, it should get together by the end of the week. The end of the week came around. He said, look, we're going to have to do another surgery. We're going to have to give you a pacemaker. And so, you know, he, yeah, so he said, you know, we're going to have to give you a pacemaker. And I went in and um, in for the second surgery. So 
know, putting a pacemaker, putting a couple of wires into my heart. And um, yeah, and, and then that was, that was that surgery. Six weeks later, I was going to get my provisional license and I started feeling bloated. I went to my cardiologist again and he said, um, you know, what the hell? Like, you know, you're hours away from death. And I went, what? Like, what do you mean? What's going on? I just feel bloated. He said, no, your pericardium, the, the sac that your heart lives in, is filled up with blood and your heart could explode at any moment. What? So, yeah, so I was like, me, like, like, when is this going to end? And he said, you know, didn't you go to the hospital, the doctor, or anything? I said, I went to the hospital a week ago because I was, wasn't feeling well. And what they did is they gave me an ECG. So for anybody at home listening, and if you have a heart condition, always get an echocardiogram. My doctor was, my cardiologist was furious. He said, I'm going to send that hospital. Um, I'm going to sue that hospital. I'm going to send them a letter. Because when you have a patient who's just come out of surgery, you give them an echocardiogram. And that's basically like an ultrasound of the heart. Yeah. So you can actually see what's going on inside the heart. ECG is just, you know, measuring, you know, your heart rate, your pulse and your, you know, it's just the stickers all over your body. So um, he, I went over, over to the hospital. Uh, the doctor came over and this time I was awake for the surgery uh, or the procedure. And I knew about what was going to go on the procedure. So I had my hand turn, turned away. And then the doctor said, Carl, are you okay? And I turned over to him and I saw this needle um, about the size of a 20 centimeter ruler. And yeah, he stuck this needle into my, uh, my heart wall. So the, the pericardium that where the, where the sac that the heart lives in and he, and he sucked out two liters of blood. So they showed me the, they showed me two sacks of blood. Um, and yeah, so, so from then I've just had to manage my heart ever since, you know, it's, it's not something that you kind of have a surgery, um, you know, like I've had surgery on my knee, you know, you kind of have that and you do rehab and try and keep that knee healthy, but with your heart, you know, you're going back all the time and yeah. they're, they're always looking at procedures and different things they can do. And, and it's, but because it's of the, because of the work that you did with your um, stepfather ward, you can do all the things that you, you want to, right? Like you can still ski, you can still, yeah. they didn't yeah. have to, it wasn't a replacement. It was a repair. <laughs> exactly. So that's, it was a repair. that's amazing that it worked out that way for you, but yeah, yeah. It's like you said, still a struggle something you still have to manage. Um, and I kind of want to, well, first I want to just say thank you for sharing your story. I think that that is that I'm just so grateful that you're still here and yes. you've been through so, so much, so much, um, all through your youth and, and then everything with your heart, it's, it's absolutely incredible. You're here, you're smiling, you're sharing your story. Um, and I obviously run this mental health podcast. And so I relate kind of everything back to mental health. And I feel yeah. like, um, just like you said, with your heart, you know, it's something that has to be managed. It's something that, that yes, it's, it's not hundred percent perfect. And you go through phases where you need to go to the doctor and you need to manage it. You need to look at things. You need to look at your diet. You need to look at, you know, different things that contribute to it. And I think that's very similar to mental health. And it's, it is often a lifelong, I mean, we're all working on our mental health, right? Even if we don't have yeah. a mental illness, we're all working on our mental health in one way or another. Um, yeah. And it's not something that you just, okay, everything's perfect. Everything's great. I can just, you know, it's not something that I have to worry about. Um, it's a lifelong thing of ups and downs and peaks and valleys and 
And um, it's something that needs to be looked at time and time again and and reevaluated. And okay, is it time to change medication? Is it time to look at my diet? Is it, you know, is there something I can do around this? And and I also I try really hard to destigmatize mental illness. And I think yes. it's it's helpful if you can look at it like you look at your heart condition. You know, that's something that's that's a bit out of your control. It happened to you, right? Um, but it's something that you can learn about. It's something you can manage. It's something that you can, um, you have the power and ability to manage with the help of health professionals. And I think relating that to mental health, it's very similar. It's sometimes I think that we're given these mental challenges that really are not no fault of our own. Um, sometimes they're affected by trauma. It could be a cause of, um, choices that we've made, maybe an addiction or something, but it doesn't define us just like your heart condition doesn't define you. It's a part of your story. It's definitely a part of your story. It's a part of your day to day. Um, but it doesn't have to control your life. And that's how I view mental illness. You know, it's, it's a part of your story, but it doesn't have to control your life. And there's things that you can do to manage it. Um, and sometimes it, it just happens. Sometimes it's, it's of no fault of your own. And, and it's just something to try and understand better and look at different, different sources. And I love your story because it wasn't just one thing that it, you know, it wasn't one, one thing that really helped you. It wasn't just heart surgery. It wasn't just nutrition. It wasn't just mindset. It was a combination of all different things. You know, if you wouldn't have done those naturalistic things, those do listening to those tapes and doing the nutrition stuff and, and really focusing on your, your mind and how, you know, visualization and all of that. Um, then your story, if you would have just gone straight in to do the the heart surgery, you wouldn't be able to function as well as you do now, but then you still needed at the same time, you did need that medical intervention needed that, um, that repair valve. Otherwise you, you might not be here today. Yeah. So yeah. I love that it was a combination of things because that is kind of, that's how I view, um, that's how I view mental health as well. It's, it's, it's multifactorial. It's not just one thing. I, I feel like sometimes we get on the side of like, oh, well, there's the naturalistic and then there's the medical and you either have to be on one side or the other. And, and people on the naturalistic side, hate on the medical side and people on the medical side, hate on the naturalistic side, just like your nurses were saying, you know, like (laughs) kind of hating on, hating on the naturalist side that you were really trying hard to, to implement. And I, I personally don't agree that it's one side or the other. I think that it's very valuable and very important to look at both sides and say, okay, here, just like, just like, um, war did for you. Here are the options this is what this looks like. You can go this way, this way, this way, or perhaps you can do both. You know, you can try this and this and this, and just keep trying different things until you find solutions that are helpful for you. Um, and so I, I love that your story shows that because I think that that is very true to mental health, um, that you can look at all different types of, 
possibilities for help and resources and healing and growth. And you can implement whatever feels right to you. And I also love that you, you talked about your experience and you said, this is something I know for me works. And this is Mm. fact for me and nobody can take it away because I have truly experienced it. Like you have experienced healing, true healing from, from the naturalism from doing everything, you know, that way. And you saw, and the doctors told you, you know, the bug on your heart shrunk from, was it three centimeter centimeters to 0.04? Is that what it was? 0.02. And that's not something that you can like, like that is pure fact. So you have that experience behind you. Um, and you, you don't, you can't, nobody can take that away from you. And I, I think that that is beautiful too, because, um, we all have experiences like that, that you, you say, you know, well, I know this is true for me and this works for me. And, and even if it doesn't work for these other people, it's true for me. Um, so I think that that is very beautiful too. Um, but yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. This has been beautiful and you share in such a, such a lovely way um, with so much compassion for other people. Again, I love the way that you talk about your mom, because I think, and how you said that the way that you react to things is what matters. And I can tell you are trying very hard to react in a loving and a a compassionate way. And I can imagine, just imagine how hard that that would be. I, I, I honestly can't imagine. I, I haven't experienced that kind of trauma and abuse. Um, and, And I think it just speaks volumes to where you were at, um, that you're able to talk about that without hatred and with, with kindness and understanding. And at the same time saying what she did, these things she did were not okay. Um, and were very painful. And I, I think that that is, that's an inspiration to other people who are going through their own trauma to, you know, to be able to look at it and say, yeah, this isn't okay. Um, but I think it's also very valuable if you can address that trauma without, without staying in that place of hate and resentment, because that only hurts you only holds you back. It's totally, certainly understandable. Um, but it's not going to help you. And so to, to be able to balance that with saying, yeah, these things were not my fault. These things were not okay. Um, but I'm going to choose to react in a way that shows as much compassion as I can, um, while at the same time protecting my, myself and, and building myself up and, and helping me realize it's not about me. It's about her, you know, or about wherever the trauma has come from. Um, so I think that's a beautiful gift that you've given to us today in this episode. And I, I really appreciate it. Um, and I'm just going to go ahead and close with a couple of questions, what does lighting the shadows mean to you? Lighting the shadows. What I believe it means to me is, you know, exactly what you're talking about with taking into account, I can hate this person. I can, and I did for many years, you know, yeah. the hate, the, the anger, you know, it's not like I just came out like a, a perfect, perfect spawn, you know? No, I mean, we're all human. <laughs> yeah. I went through a depression, that hate, that, you know, taking on this victimhood, you know, the, the, the weight of the world's on my shoulders. And I think the light in the shadows is just realizing that, you know, it's not, 
us versus the world. You know, there, there's, there's so many people out there who are every day going through battles, going through hard times. And if we can make ourselves the best well-rounded, you know, person that is taking ownership over their life and deciding their destiny in every day with every heartbeat, then we can help the rest of those people out in the world, you know, and you light your shadows from yourself first. So you've got to look after yourself. You can't be someone who's helping the world, but you don't take any care of yourself. You know, you take care of yourself first and then the greater you take care of yourself, it's a beautiful thing. You're able yeah. to take care of others. And there's so many, we, we both know there's so many people out there in the world that, that, that need help or, or information or, or a different um, narrative to hear. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. Um, and I love that you mentioned heartbeat because I'm sure heartbeat <laughs> it has an, an extra load of meaning to you um, because you were worried at one time that you wouldn't be able to, to survive and you wouldn't be able to experience another healthy heartbeat, you know, waking up from that and, or exactly. when you first were told about the, the bug on your heart. So yeah. Um, I love that you've brought that in there too. Like when you experience, and this is, this is true for me as well. When you experience something really, really challenging, um, and you question if you're going to survive it, you know, if that's even a question and then you survive it, you just have so much more gratitude for the life that you have. Um, and I, I can hear that in your story and I, I resonate with that in mine because there was, there was a time where I didn't know if I would survive. I truly didn't know. Um, and it was absolutely terrifying and scary. And now that I've made it through, okay, I am so grateful, so grateful for every, every conversation, every, um, expression of love that I'm able to receive or give, and I'm just filled with so much, so much more gratitude than I had before my experience. Um, and then I think like you, I want to share my story. I want to, I want to share these things that I've learned through my struggles because I realize, like, oh, I thought it was hopeless once. Now I know that it's not, that there is hope, yeah. that there is possibility for change. Um, so with that, and my final question, how can, can, how can listeners connect with you? I know that you're working on writing a book, um, a yes. memoir, a self-help yep. memoir titled Decide Your Destiny, um, but yes. you're in the process of that. So yep. for sure, we'll be looking for that when you, you have it all ready to publish. Um, but how can, how can people connect with you? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think connecting with us is so important with what you're doing you know i think so many people out there in the world need to have that constant inspiration you know and i and i look at it I, and that's why i'm writing this book is that if i had a book that you know had decided destiny you know that i could actually take control of my life when my life was being controlled by family by heart situations by doctors i think it was you know i can't take control of my life right now i can't really decide my destiny i can't create the life that I want you know the, the life that I want has been ripped out of you know ripped out underneath my feet how can I do that so when I discovered that I could and my, my grandfather um, actually really instilled that into me um, one day and he looked to me one day and he just turned to me and he said you know 
the sun was hitting the side of his face. He had this boyish sort of smile on his face and kind of like he just came across this bit of wisdom. He just said, decide your destiny in your life. So, you know, that's, that's what I'm doing every day. And, you know, people can kind of find me on YouTube, uh, Kyle Spirides on Instagram, Kyle, Kyle underscore Spirides. And I'm just getting that message out there every day of deciding your destiny, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I will for sure have those links available on my website for people um, to connect with you. And thank you so much for your time, Kyle. I really appreciate this conversation and, and I hope you get some sleep tonight (laughs) (laughs) now that it is after midnight for you. Um, but I really appreciate you. So thank you. No, it's awesome. I'm so glad that I've been able to do this across the globe and thank you so much for having me on your show. And you know, you've got such a great message that you're getting out there to so many people who need it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me on Lighting the Shadows. I hope you felt inspired to keep shining your light and be the unique person that you are. A person worth love, peace, joy, and life. I hope today's material has been helpful for you in some way. If you have any questions or comments, or if you would like to be a guest speaker, you can contact me through my website, lightingtheshadows.org. Have a wonderful week.